At first, there was something of a fuss. Then, as Hans Joachim Schutz tells us, the matter became a problem and grew into what some called a battle that lasted into the 20th century. And it all had to do with Bach and his use of parody. Now, that's not making fun of something as we know the word today, though we'll soon hear that Bach could create laughter in music in an unparalleled way, but rather, as the Encyclopedia Britannica defines it, parody, a creative reworking of a pre-existent composition to form a new work. Schulte tells us, an urge to repress and the tendency to minimize Bach's parody process set in relatively early. The Breslau church musician Johann Musavius was one of the first, if not the very first, to point out in his 1844 discussion of Bach cantatas and chorales that the composer's so-called short masses consisted mostly of reworked cantata movements. Six years later, in 1850, the Hamburg lawyer Karl Hilgenfeld could venture a value judgment. Bach had not apparently been interested in the composition of these masses, and so he rid himself of the task by assembling pieces reworked from cantatas. Wilhelm Rust, about a generation younger, reached for a more dictatorial formulation in the first two Bach volumes he edited. If something is truly sacred, it remains sacred, he wrote with conviction of the parodied movements of the Christmas Oratorio. The subsequent discovery of a secular origin changes nothing. Rust opined that, right from the start, Bach was concerned with the use of his occasional cantatas as church music, not surprisingly considering the many duties he had in the often senseless texts that were set before him. Bach ruled out for use in the Christmas Oratorio only those pieces that could not be adapted to sacred purposes. Philip Spitta's Bach monograph sticks to the path laid out by Rust. The peremptory tone is the same. The Bachian style was the sacred, and the sacred style was the Bachian. His secular occasional compositions were, on the contrary, unsecular, and as such did not fulfill their purpose. The composer returned them to their rightful place when he transformed them into church pieces. There need be no fear of tension and disagreement in this view. A simple act of annexation has removed its foundation. The parody process, with its approximate equivalence of sacred and secular versions of a work, does not fit in with the period's highly stylized view of Bach as a kind of idol, as Germany's greatest church composer. In the succeeding years, Schulze continues, the concept of the word-tone relationship developed in the opera aesthetic of Richard Wagner and his school and it had more than its share of influence. But minimization and annexation have proven themselves to be unsuitable tools. The open conflict over the parody issue has given rise to a widespread and refined strategy of defense. This battle, fought as it were while beating a retreat, has lasted practically until today. There are those who contend that the affect itself or the emotion in a work of music remains the same, only the object changes, so that here a spiritual pain is felt, there a secular one. 
Here one longs for something sacred, there for something worldly, and so on. The tone that gives us pleasure in an opera can do the same in church. It's just that the object is different. May we say then that intention is all, context a key for a composer? We are invited to experience the power of the Easter Oratorio by Johann Sebastian Bach to be performed by the Bach Choir of Bethlehem and the Bach Festival Orchestra with special guest soloists under the direction of Christopher Jackson this weekend. The program will include part three of Handel's Messiah. And the mastery of these composers is revealed even more strongly, perhaps, if we know the sources and influences of a composer's work and the inspiration for the works that they've created. So, we had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Jackson, music director and conductor of the Bach Choir, about all this artistry. The concert that we're performing on March 26th will start with Bach's Easter Oratorio, and then finish with part three of Handel's Messiah, which is the Easter section of of Messiah. And the pieces, they really came about in slightly different ways. (laughs) It's funny, we have record of Bach, actually the origin of this piece was as a birthday cantata or drama for a local duke. But scholars really believe, I find this very comical actually, believed that Bach already had in mind that he would need to make this piece multi-purpose. So, for example, the text, he, he hired the same librettist for both the birthday cantata and what eventually became this Easter oratorio. This is Picander, one of his most commonly used librettists and just a, a brilliant writer in so many ways. The texts work so interchangeably that it, it feels like it must have been planned. So, for example, in the, the birthday drama, the, the text is completely different. It's about, you know, shepherds and shepherdesses, and many of the characters have names, and it has this really pastoral feel. But then when Bach transformed it into the Easter Oratorio, all of the arias are identical. Just the recitatives were changed, but the text, even the rhyme scheme, is exactly the same, and some of the rhymes themselves are identical. So, you know, we have this idea, perhaps, that Bach knew he had to write a ton of music all the time. So maybe he was doing himself a favor by, uh, by looking ahead. So, you know, what were originally these named shepherds and shepherdesses ended up becoming the characters, you know, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and then Mary, the mother of James. And those are, those are your four soloists in the Easter Oratorio. You mentioned the dramatic nature of the birthday cantata. What's going on story-wise, then, in the course of the Easter Oratorio? Well, I find the work particularly dramatic, and Bach sets the scene for us in the opening two movements, which are purely instrumental. You get this opening section that's extremely joyous in kind of a fast three with trumpets, and, and it's just really elated. But that's immediately followed by another short instrumental section where the trumpets go away and it's reduced really to just strings and a single oboe that mournfully floats over the top of the string section. And what Bach is setting us up for in the Easter Oratorio is this balance of certainly joy at triumph and victory. So I think what you get in the oratorio is that it's not certain that 
we know Jesus will return, what is certain, at least, is, is that through his death, there is victory. So that's where the joyous music comes from. But the, the music that's more minor and with that haunting oboe line, I think it represents the fear of, of those people present outside of Jesus' tomb, the uncertainty about will he return or really even bemoaning mankind's response to, to, you know, to Jesus' life on this planet. So it's this constant balance back and forth of overcoming death, victory over death through, through Jesus, but, but also a lot of uncertainty for the followers. And what ends up happening is we, we go back and forth. You know, there's an aria, and then the, the characters will express their hesitation again. So if I were to take you through the, you know, the full thing, we, we have those opening orchestral movements and then an incredible reprise by the chorus in movement three, where they, they say, come and hasten to, to the tomb, hurry to the tomb that holds Jesus. And the soloists interrupt the chorus, really, and, and they, they talk about laughter and glee that Jesus is risen. But then we're transported back into the story where the soloists are outside of the tomb, the bemoaning man. And then the soprano aria, movement five comes in and it's actually, it's remarkable. It's, um, it's got a beautiful flute solo, but what really bowls me over about this movement is actually the text. The soprano says that the spices that you have no longer need to be myrrh. And myrrh was a typical burial spice that was used to, you know, help, frankly, to help cover the smell of, of of a body, and the soprano says, in, instead of myrrh, you'll be crowned with wreaths of laurel, which are meant to represent victory. So she sings this, this beautiful long aria with the, with the flute, and then it cuts immediately back to our four characters, where they find the crypt, and they uncover the, the stone, but they find it empty, which is a, a complete shock to them. And then our tenor sings this incredible aria for, for multiple flutes, actually. And the text translates to, quiet and gentle will be my pangs of death. And it actually takes the form of something that's common in Bach's music. It's called a slumber aria. And what's indicative of a slumber aria are kind of beautiful long notes and gentle oscillating patterns. And so you, you get this in this tenor aria. It's probably my favorite orchestration in the entire Easter Oratorio because it has two flutes and multiple violins and they're all playing in the same range and it creates almost like a blanket of comfort. And that must be intentional by Bach because he even mentions the presence of Jesus's shroud. And I think that's what's being depicted in the way the flutes and the strings are playing in exactly the same, the same register. So, you know, we jump back one more time to the characters before the alto sings this great aria. Tell me quickly, where can I find Jesus? It's probably my favorite musical depiction of excitement that I may have heard in, in any of Bach's works that I've, I've conducted here so far. It's just a blast. And then we get one final chorus that is a chorus of thanksgiving about Jesus' victory over death. We were talking last time about the Christmas Oratorio, and you helped us understand the difference between the universal and also the very personal for us as listeners that we might identify with 
and you've talked about the slumber aria. Is there a similar sense of the personal where we as listeners are drawn in, in a way, as individuals rather than as a body, the church? Well, you know, what's really fascinating is that the Easter Oratorio has, has no congregational chorale tunes. And so the Christmas Oratorio, what was making it feel very personal for me in my interpretation, were these opportunities for the chorales to sort of reflect. And this is much more standard sort of dramatic format for the time, which is there's a recitative, there's an aria, there's a recitative, there's an aria. And the piece is bookended by very large choruses. But in that way, it's actually quite different. So I see this more as a dramatic narrative that's indicative of the time and less personal. It's funny, Bach even eventually removed the names of the characters from his, from his scores because he was concerned that the local church fathers would find it too operatic in nature. And so this speaks to what I'm talking about, that it doesn't have any chorale tunes and therefore more closely resembles what was common at the time for, for opera. You know, there are some theological clues in it, though, and one in particular really jumps out at me, the final chorus. You know, Bach was very attuned to religious sort of symbology in his music, and so we get a lot of triplets in this final chorus. And, of course, three representing the Trinity. Often Bach will will put a movement where he wants to represent the Trinity actually in a meter of three. But in this case, he doesn't. He puts it in a meter of four and just adds a lot of triplets to represent the Trinity. But what is really curious is there's a section in the final chorus that's really raucous, where he starts to talk about death and, and hell and Satan and how they've been tamed and all of the triplets disappear when Bach is talking about hell and Satan. No longer is there any, any symbology about the Trinity. Everything goes into a very sort of martial, duple feel. And so, you know, certainly embedded in here are theological symbols, but it, it doesn't have the personal nature of the Christmas Oratorio. Let me ask you, you mentioned laughter laughter in a serious setting like that. Tell us about that part of this oratorio. So that comes in the opening movement when the bass and tenor soloists, they, they interrupt the movement. You, you think it's going to be entirely choral, and then suddenly you get the, you know, the bass and the tenor soloist out there on their own, and they're singing this. They start with the word laughter, and it's this very, very long melisma that's in thirds, and it's just, it's, it's quite jubilant and sprightly, but I, I'm always amazed at Bach's ability to inject joy so quickly into subject matter that, that again, at other times is, is a lot more fearful or expressing uncertainty. But no, in the opening movement, the, the melismas that the bass and the tenor sing are almost comically long and difficult, actually. So I don't know if he was trying to make a joke there, but yeah, it's, it's a blast.
I love the way you enjoy the music so much and can talk about it in that way as a blast. Well, let's just pause there with Bach and bring in Handel and Messiah and a little bit about Handel on his own, but then how they might be different and similar in terms of what they're up to with this focus on Easter. You know, it's interesting because the Easter oratorio of Bach did have a sort of secular origin, at least, or simultaneous origin, depending on, you know, how you want to, how you want to think about it. It is closer to Handel than most of Bach's other work. You know, Handel was an opera impresario, and in the 40 days of Lent, opera wasn't permitted. So oratorio, uh, Handel's Messiah, was essentially the only acceptable version. It's, it's just sacred opera, opera on sacred themes. And that's the, that's the genesis of, of Handel's Messiah. Now, the text, though, and Handel was very intelligent about this, the text in the third part, the part that deals with Easter, is actually taken from the Book of Common Prayer, for the most part. It's, a lot of it's from Corinthians. But the the librettist there took readings assigned for burial services in the Book of Common Prayer. So it would have been something that the common public was extremely familiar with. They would have heard this at, at most funerals that they had gone to. So that text being extremely familiar is another way that Handel was really quite genius about connecting to large local audiences and ensuring that he could still make a living during Lent. You know, I started off by saying he was a pretty infamous opera impresario, and he he wanted to to put butts in seats, I think is is the colloquial way of saying it. But, you know, aside from that, musically, they are different in a couple of interesting ways. There are no named characters, but... When you look at the orchestra and what the orchestra is doing and the role of the chorus, Handel really does approach it differently. And I think you can go back to Handel's roots in opera to understand the difference. So, for example, there's just a lot less activity in the orchestra. Often the violins are playing exactly the same line. So in box music, you'll have a violin one and a violin two, and they're playing different lines. In a lot of Handel's Messiah, both violin parts are playing the exact same line, and he even omits the viola part. So you essentially just have this lush, kind of gorgeous upper string melody juxtaposed against whatever the soloist might be singing. And so that's a primary difference. There are, of course, exceptions to that. But then I think the other difference is that the chorus is used much more frequently in Handel's Messiah. And again, that has a lot to do with pleasing the public. They, they came in, they wanted to hear some really great arias by really great soloists. And the chorus, of course, always injects some grandiosity or some excitement. And so we have very many more choruses throughout Messiah than in many of Bach's larger choral works. Bach handle, do they leave us in the same space at the end of the oratorio, at the end of Messiah? Are we in a same kind of, if not theological, spiritual space? I actually think yes. You know, Handel, finally, he he ends part three with really, I think, the only bit of it that's not from Corinthians. Oh, there's a little bit from Romans as well, but the final chorus, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, is actually from Revelation. And 
what he does here, you know, there there is a bit of the the sort of wringing of hands about about death throughout part three of Messiah, but this final chorus, worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood, is so triumphant. And so both are about the victory over death. And I, I joke about Handel really wanting to sort of please a crowd, but the final amen in part three of Messiah is really where Handel shows his true colors, I think, as a composer. It's just this very, I wouldn't even say elaborate, I have to think about a word. It's, it's a majestic fugue. And for, for there to be so many kind of simplistic arias, and even the choruses are, are a bit simple preceding this, but to close with this grand and majestic fugue on Amen, you know, what it really reminds me of is if you ever have seen the ceilings in in really great palaces from the Baroque era, like the Palace of Versailles or Saint-Souci in right outside of Berlin, up on the ceiling in many of the rooms, you'll see these depictions of the entire heavenly host, you know, angels everywhere and clouds and just so much activity. And what you get from this Amen fugue at the end is this expansive sense of the heavens and and that everything has been done for a reason and the victory over death was prophesied so long ago and has finally come to fruition in this sort of grand design. It's just exquisite. We have a wonderful chance to hear all of the things that you talked about with us just now, executed, presented for, performed for us by the Bach choir of Bethlehem, the Bach Festival Orchestra, and you've invited soloists to join you. Please tell us who's going to be joining you. It's another really, really, really good lineup of soloists. We have Sherry Pantaki as our soprano soloist, and she's just one of the finest, really, making the the rounds right now in the United States. We have a name that many of you may recognize. Danny Taylor is our countertenor, who will be singing the alto solos. And Danny has been on on some of the best recordings of Baroque music for virtually the last 20 years. So I, I highly recommend going and looking up his recordings because they're just phenomenal. And then we have Canadian tenor Isaiah Bell coming in, who's just got a both simultaneously gorgeous and powerful voice. And then we're really pleased to introduce a new face to, to our local audiences here, a younger baritone by the name of Harrison Hensha, who will be joining us. And Harrison is, is fast becoming a rising star in the, in the world of Baroque music in the United States. So it's a great lineup. And gosh, we really do hope that people will make the trip down. It's March 26th at 4 p.m. at First Presbyterian Church. And then our festival is also not long around the corner. So uh, we, hope, we hope people will come down. Dr. Christopher Jackson, who is music director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem and the Bach Festival Orchestra, speaking with us in anticipation of this Sunday's performance. As we heard, the program will include Bach's Easter Oratorio and Part 3 of Handel's Messiah. 
And the start time is 4 o'clock at the First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem, Center Street in Bethlehem. And for more information, bach.org, B-A-C-H dot O-R-G, B-A-C-H dot O-R-G. It's the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, the Spring Concert, and it's the Easter Oratorio of Johann Sebastian Bach, and part three of Handel's Messiah with special guest soloists under the direction of Dr. Christopher Jackson. Again, Bach.org. It's Sunday, March 26th, this Sunday at four in the afternoon at the First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem, Center Street. Bach.org.